Exodus chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, our text this morning. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. And while her young women walked beside the river, she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant women, and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. And she took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother, and Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him, and when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because she said, I drew him out of the water." It is a well-known theme within the Hebrew background, a well-known theme of barrenness. The ancestral mother of the Jewish people, Sarah, was barren, and barrenness occurs up so frequently in Israel's backstory. Not only was Sarah barren, but so was Rebekah, Isaac's wife, and he prayed for her, and then she conceived, and then also Rachel. Jacob's wife for many years, also experiencing barrenness before she eventually became pregnant with Joseph. Uh, but all of these not without a significant act of God working in the background and as a reward for covenant faithfulness. We don't use the word covenant a lot in our English contemporary world. But in the ancient Near East, a covenant was a binding agreement made between two parties. Usually, the two parties were of equal standing socially, and covenants were binding, and they each carried responsibilities. Each party agreeing to a covenant had to fulfill responsibilities to keep that covenant up. For example, one might make a covenant with a well owner because maybe in your property you can't find enough water to sustain your flocks, and so you reach out to a neighboring tribesman and you agree and you covenant together to provide uh, military strength in case invaders come. So you've agreed to exchange services for one another through covenant obligation. And generally speaking, a violation of that agreement would release the other party from any obligation to keep covenant. Now, I've shared this because God, in His kindness to Sarah and Abraham, had established a covenant kind of relationship with them, and He observed faithfulness in the lives of Sarah and Abraham, 
and rewarded them with the promise to provide them with an heir, with a son. God, on the other hand, is not, I would say, an equal party. God must initiate covenants with mankind as he did with Abraham and with Sarah. And within an umbrella of promise that comes from God, God promises to deal well with individual family members within the nation of Israel, that in response to their faithfulness to Him, He rewards them and keeps covenant with them because of His love for Abraham. Faithfulness is seen in the midwives of whom we looked at last uh, Sunday. We looked at the midwives who resisted the edict of Pharaoh who said, you've got to destroy these children, these boys, when they're born. Their faithfulness was rewarded by God, and God kept covenant with these women. And it says in Exodus 1 verse 20, God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong, and because the midwives feared God, in other words, they kept covenant with God, they obeyed His Word, they were faithful to Him, God fulfilled His part and blessed them with families. So there is a subplot that's running through the background of the story of Exodus in which the oppression of Pharaoh is being pitted against the covenant promises of God to make God's people flourish and multiply. And these faithful women decide, we're not going to listen to what Pharaoh tells us to do. We're going to obey our God and trust Him. And all these persons, all these events are intended to correspond and draw our minds to the working of God in the background. We can't see God physically, but we can see Him working in the hearts and lives of people, keeping His Word, which then motivates us to greater faithfulness to Him. Now, this idea of barrenness that kind of shows up in the story of Israel is designed to get our attention to remember God's promises. But there is also something that's missing in a covenant relationship. There's no… In all the previous covenants that we had read about in Genesis, there was always a person. There was always a person who would, like, receive communication from God directly and then tell that to the family. That started with Abraham. And then Isaac got the mantle. And then Jacob, and then Joseph, and these all had dreams and visions and miracles, and they had messages from God who had made this covenant relationship with them. And now we have the voice of Pharaoh oppressing his people, and now we are asking ourselves, will there be another voice that will bring us a message from God? Who will come and rescue us from the voice of Pharaoh? And with the memory of the covenant faithfulness established with the midwives, we're now looking for a mediator who will bring messages from God to His people. 
And into this expectation, as you're reading along, all of a sudden you find yourself hoping, if you're a Jewish reader, you're hoping for someone that might come along that would be like Abraham or Isaac or, or Jacob or Joseph. And all these folks had unusual birth stories. What's going to keep up with all of these images? Who do you think is going to come along? Well, his name is Moses. And he enters into the storyline with a very unique birth story and a birth announcement, and this is he who would come. Everyone's waiting for he who would come to deliver God's people. And into this narrative, God powerfully acts to reward the faithfulness of three women who resist tyranny, the tyranny to destroy children. And our idea that I want to unpack this morning from this text is that God rewards faithfulness to His irrevocable Word in the creation covenant. We may not realize this, but there was an agreement established in the first three chapters of Genesis, and there are three female heroes, and each female does not suppress the covenant that God made with humanity in the very beginning. And this is a message that extends beyond Christians. This is a message that is applicable to every human being on earth. God has made a covenant agreement with humanity because we bear His image And he has expectations for humanity to carry out the image that we bear with proper respect and with proper dignity. Now, the word covenant does not occur in Genesis 1 through 3, but the key components are there. Everyone and everything in Genesis 1 were created after their kind. And we are unique in this respect because we're not made in the image of animal kind, we're made in the image of God Himself. And God, creating us in His image, gives an expression of who He is, and He blesses the image, but He also requires faithfulness in response. And when God blessed us with His image, these words were communicated in the very beginning These words were, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over it. And so I want to propose to you a new thought, maybe you've not ever really considered, that having children, as much as God permits it in His providence, is keeping covenant with God as mankind created in His image. And this is what makes the sexually deviant behavior that we see rampant in our society so heinous, is because, to quote Paul, it is giving up the natural relations for those which are contrary to nature. In nature, there are, fu- there are requirements for fulfilling our image as image bearers. And one of those 
is to multiply and to fill the earth and to subdue it. Have you not noticed that there is such hatred for humanity in secular society? We have too many people filling up this earth. We're destroying. Man is the worst thing that could ever have come along. And so there's this intentional attempt to try to limit the, the original covenant that God had established in the beginning that we would fill the earth and we would multiply and have dominion over it. Now, I want to show you three women who take God's creation covenant seriously, and God rewards these women because they recognize that God's Word at the beginning of creation set a pattern and was foundational, and it was something that couldn't be set aside. It was something that had to be honored, respected, and obeyed. And so, first, I want us to see that God rewards a mother for resistance to Pharaoh's edict. Now, I'm not going to walk through this text verse by verse per se. I'm going to organize my thoughts around the actions of these three women. So, we're going to think about how this mother, who is shrouded in anonymity, marries a man from the house of Levi. She also being a Levite woman, we don't really hear her name, and that's done a little bit intentionally, because the birth announcement is what's critically important that this Savior would come, this representative from God. And yet, if you're unfamiliar with the history of, of Jacob and uh, his family, I, I think I should let you know that, that he had 12 children. That's a big, that's a big brood of kids. And uh, in his quest to fulfill the, the great commission of fulfilling the creation mandate, he had 12 children, and one of those children, whose name was Levi, became in time the head of a tribe within the nation of, of Israel. And so, we know that this child was not conceived as the firstborn. In verse 2, it says, "...the woman conceived and bore a son." And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. We know that this was not her first child because we, we read about an older sister a little bit later in the account. As you read more into the book of Exodus, you get, begin to learn about a brother whose name was Aaron. And these uh, make up the family that we know of, of this, this nameless couple presented to us here. But I want to point out particularly something that Moses was not the firstborn, and nevertheless, he is following in a similar trajectory of those who have led Israel. We often tend to think of God blessing and using the firstborn. Now, God may choose to do so, but in the story of Israel's development, God has continually picked from the youngest. Um, Jacob was a biological twin, but he was not the first out of the womb. He was the younger. Um, you also consider that uh, Joseph was not uh, the oldest. He was a younger. 
And you think about David himself. King David was not the oldest, he was the youngest. And I want to take a moment here just to give a moment to reflect. If you were a younger son, you might want to think about this. You might feel as though you don't have the leadership skills, and you may feel as though you might be inadequate because your older brothers have shined. But God needs humble young men to declare God's Word to the church. Maybe God would be calling you. Maybe God would call you to proclaim His Word. Take time to reflect. God in His providence puts you exactly where He wants you. But why butcher boys? Why was it so, why was this such an issue? Well, because boys have testosterone. Boys procreate. Boys go off to war. And procreation, although it being risky, was something that was going to put this woman in a very difficult place. What would you do, given this edict is in place, and you're carrying this child for nine months, there's no ultrasound in those days, there's only rumors and wild wives' tales as, you know, this is, a, this is an easy pregnancy, well, maybe it's a girl, you know, whatever the, whatever's going was probably the rumors and thoughts that they had in those days. But I want to ask you this question, what if it was a boy? I would want to encourage you that the result of obedience to God's commands is not yours to manipulate. The future belongs to the Lord. It is ours to obey and to trust Him with whatever He will lead and direct us with. I believe that in this text, she takes some wise actions once she sees and discovers that she has a boy, because it gets pretty obvious pretty quick whether it's a boy or a girl. And it is very likely that they had a private circumcision for that baby boy. Uh, I don't think that they they were public because of what kind of issues that would create. And it's very possible in that day that, that moms might have cocooned maybe 90, 100 days, we just don't know. There are some cultures that do that. And at some point, she, though, would have to bring her child out into public. You know, everyone had has seen her pregnant for nine months. Eventually, you're going to know what this gender is. And so she, like the midwives, she becomes creative in her resistance to Pharaoh. I don't know if you realize, but she technically obeys the edict because she technically put the baby in the Nile. But she put the baby in a protective cover, in a floating box, a flotation device surrounding her son. Incredibly creative. I want to take note that the word that Moses is, he's recording his own birth story here. He, he, he's aware, he uses a word for basket that more literally is translated box. And very uniquely, this is the same word box that is used when talking about Noah. The ark was a box. 
And I see in this that this awareness that Moses is describing his own birth story, he was put into an ark to be saved. And everything that Noah's story represents about salvation for the world, Moses, by equal terms, is also a savior for all who will follow him out of Egypt. He's not unaware of what God is doing in the background here. But he, there is a mother who is willing to resist, and she is obviously taking her own life into her hands, and she's willing to do that. There's risk in her obedience, but there is also obvious reward. In verse 9, we, we see kind of the end of the story where, where, where the baby is found, and then, and then the sister goes and gets the mother, and, and God is not absent in that He rewards her faithfulness to keep covenant with Him, to preserve human life. She not only has the pleasure of seeing her own son live, she even has the joy of nursing her own child. And, and she's even protected. She's paid. She's being paid, protected by the princess of Egypt. You know, I think a lot of young women in America think that if they choose to preserve the life of a child by giving their child to adoption, that maybe their child will one day grow up to hate them. I think that's a lie. Young women who choose to save and spare the lives of their children often have the reward of seeing their children flourish, having the opportunity to see their, their son or daughter grow up is a tremendous blessing. There are open adoptions, and I have a friend in ministry who has an, an open adoption with a mother of, and I just recently saw a picture of, of them all together with the birth mother enjoying the realization that little Ayla is just a part of their life and as a way to connect and it's just beautiful. I think that we often are fearful and our minds let us to imagine the worst when God actually wants us to have what's the best. It's also risky, I think, in our day to, I know we have a lot of inflationary pressure, but there are many who might be fearful that government policy might make it so that raising a family is next to impossible. Obviously, you need to plan, but I think that if you put off the indefinite creation covenant mandate to all humanity because you're fearful or you desire to travel the world, you might not in the end be trusting God's irrevocable word. Now, that might sound to be pretty straightforward and pretty direct, and maybe you might say, well, that's none of your business. Well, I understand that it's between you and the Lord and God's providence. But I want to say, hallelujah, we have three babies being born in the next eight weeks here at the tabernacle. There are three beautiful children about ready to be born, and so I expect also in response to the sermon that in nine to 12 months, there'll be more. I'm expecting a baby boom. Sorry, guys, you'll kind of crucify me later. But I want you to recognize that God honors this mother. God also honors a princess for an extraordinary act of kindness. Verse 5 and 6, we see the account there of Pharaoh coming, Pharaoh's, uh, the princess coming down 
and uh, the daughter of Pharaoh, and she's, she's coming down to bathe, and her, has her young women, servant girls with her, and she, she finds this child, and she has pity. And we really know nothing about this, this Egyptian princess, except that this is the moment in which she chooses to show compassion for this child. She's still anonymous today. We really don't know who she is. Archaeologists have uh, no doubt attempted to discover who she is, and we really don't know who she is. There's some theories. But she, would, I would have to say, is probably one of the most famous of the Egyptian monarchy. And the biblical record really doesn't really show a lot of interest in the Egyptian pharaohs from this period. We don't even know any of their names. We don't really know any of their building. We do know that it was kind of within the time period of the pyramids and the sphinx and obelisks and all of that stuff that we might see. But instead, we hear of this, a singular act of kindness towards an abandoned child. And I want to say that the greatest memorial that any woman might build is not necessarily a business, not a career, but children. And the daughter of Pharaoh, we don't know if she was married or she was single. We don't know if she was barren or not. But what we do know is that she adopted. And in verse 10... We also read that she gave this child the name Moses because she drew this baby out of the water. Some have thought that maybe this is a mistake in the Hebrew because the Egyptian equivalent to the letters that are used to form the Hebrew word Moses also has a different kind of sound in Egyptian and has a different meaning, meaning being a born or a child. So, Mose is child or born in the Egyptian dialect. Very close. But here, Moses records that she does it because she's, and she uses Hebrew vocalization. I think this is remarkable because what this implies to me is that the princess maintained contact with Moses' mother. And as his wet nurse, she would have been bringing his, the child around the princess very frequently. And it's very likely that the princess began to learn the language, and she took that and applied it to this little boy. It would have probably been very quite satisfying her to know that she could use this word that sounds Egyptian and sounds Hebrew, and it would have been very satisfying to her. And you think about the beautiful inclusion into the story pages of this honoring of this, this woman who, who from all our knowing likely worshipped the false gods of her childhood. But yet she acted in a way that was consistent with God's creation covenant in the beginning. And I want to just dwell on this, that regardless of whether or not we are Christian or non-Christian, every human being has within them this sense and awareness that they have to 
that they multiply the image of God throughout the world. And I would say that we all have this sense of a moral good in the birth of children. And Christians rightly see the destruction of life in the womb as being murder. But yet there is something even greater than even, and I know murder is horrible, but there's something even more foundational that goes beyond that in which we recognize that it is a violation of God's creation covenant in the beginning. God created us in His image to multiply and to fill the earth. And I think this is a reason why evangelicals, Bible believers, ought to partner with others who we may not share the same faith with regarding this issue. I believe that we are free to partner with Muslims, with Hindus, with Jews who condemn the harming of human life in the womb, because we all share the same creation covenant at the beginning. It is foundational to our humanity. This is not just a religious issue, this is a human rights issue, and we have to be prepared to work together to defend it. I want to encourage us all to consider that Options Women's Center is trying to set up a a facility here in Honsdale. And they were approached not by Protestant evangelical organizations, they were approached by the Knights of Columbus to try to get this together and established. And I think, hallelujah, there are people out there who may not share the same faith as I do, but yet they are willing to put themselves into alignment with what God had established and ordained in the beginning. That's critical. And so it's something that we can unite around and we can celebrate, and I would encourage you to come out next uh, Saturday for the Walk for Life. I invite you to come. Now, there's a third woman here, a young woman. We don't know exactly how old she is, but God blesses a sister for her assertiveness to save her brother. A beautiful, assertive young lady. And we read in verse... uh, Verse 4, that she was positioned at a distance to know what would be done to Moses. And as the daughter comes up, and in verse 7, then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And it all came together because a sister stood up for her younger brother. Now, The older siblings have a difficult time from time to time. But I want to say that she had a special place, a responsibility to keep her younger brother out of trouble. I know as as much as younger boys dislike having two mothers, sometimes they're there for our benefit, and sometimes they're there for our good. And I want to just mention here that God does reward this older sister. Her name is Miriam, and we come to know later in the storyline of Exodus that she has been given unique responsibilities within the nation. I note that after the Exodus from Egypt, after the Red Sea is parted and everyone goes to the other side, 
I note this in Exodus 15, then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her and with tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them, and she sang the lyrics of the song that Moses had written, and I just realized, you know what? God honored her faithfulness. God gave her a place of service, and what a blessing an older sister could be in the life of, and I know of, I know of people's testimonies of older sisters who have led them to the Lord. What a blessing those ladies are in the lives of their younger siblings. And I bring all of these three ladies to our attention this morning to help us to remember that God rewards faithfulness to His irrevocable Word. It's found in the creation covenant. Now, I know that I titled this sermon, The First Messiah. And I did that because there are some unique features in Moses' birth narrative that ought to prick our attention as people living in our day. As great as Moses' birth was and his adoption and the miracles, they were nevertheless outdone by the second Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus was conceived inside a barren womb, in the womb of a virgin. She wasn't supposed to be pregnant. In fact, she probably was fearful to become pregnant. But nevertheless, God acted in a miraculous way, overcoming all the stories of Israel and all the barrenness. Jesus' life was sought by King Herod as a little baby, just as much as Moses' life was sought as a little baby. Jesus was a deliverer from slavery, the slavery of sin and death. Jesus kept the creation covenant in ways in which we could never, ever do, because through His death and resurrection, Jesus brought many sons and daughters into relationship with our Heavenly Father. And so I want us to consider, as great as the story is of Moses and God's working in providence, all of this is leading ultimately to the great Messiah who is to come, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, Jesus is the one who all hearts need to bow. He is the one who, who gives us the reason for living our lives in fulfillment of the creation covenant and promotion of faithful heterosexual marriages, caring for widows, caring for orphans and the unborn. This is all a part of our mandate as Christians. And it's a way in which we keep covenant with God who created this world for His glory and also for our own good. And so I want us to encourage us to think, how can we be faithful? How can we be faithful until the Lord returns? We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. We have some things that may give us indication that it's very close. But how can we be faithful as image bearers in this world to a world that's dark and lost and needs the hope of eternal life? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for time and the Word this morning. I pray, Father, that, that our hearts would be 
moved to consider that the, the world that we live in is very hostile against you and that we would not that we would not just float down the stream with the world, but that we would reverse course and we would be pushing against the wickedness of Satan that wants to destroy the, 